Hello and welcome to Naked Politics' one-off podcast, Youth and the Radical Right. We think of young people as social justice warriors on the forefront of movements for change. Over the last several years, we've seen young people have been core contributors for movements against racism, sexism and climate change, to name a few. But what about the young people who aren't quote-unquote woke? What about the ones who are susceptible to right-wing extremism, who the mainstream media seem to largely ignore? To finish our article series, Youth and the Radical Right, um, which was an exploration of young people being radicalised by the extreme right, we're hosting a discussion with three fantastic guests to talk about why there are young people who are falling into extremist right-wing ideas and what we can do to prevent it. So joining me in this discussion, first of all, Maddie Cannon, who is a research intern at the Centre for Analysis of the Radical Right, and is currently finishing off her Master's in Anthropology and Cultural Politics at Goldsmiths University. Her Master's dissertation, Gender in the White Supremacist Imagination, explores the critical role that gendered narratives and ideals play among far-right youth in the US and Sweden. Secondly, I'm joined by Jack, who's graduated from his Master's in Terrorism, Security and Society at King's College London with a distinction after attaining a uh, Bachelor of Arts in History at the University of Birmingham, having studied the history of terrorism as a specialist subject. He recently completed a research internship at the Centre for Analysis of the Radical Right, where he assisted with several projects investigating right-wing extremism and terrorism. And finally, I'm joined by Patrick, who is a researcher at Hope Not Hate, a British anti-fascism and anti-racism organisation specialising in transnationalism, extreme right networks, far-right terrorism and far-right organising on alternative social media platforms. In 2017, Patrick spent a year undercover in the British and American far-right and as one of the authors of the international alt-right, Fascism for the 21st Century, released in 2020. So three guests uh, who definitely have a lot of credentials in this area. So my first question, I guess, really to kick off this discussion, um, which I think will probably be of interest to people who don't really know much about this area in general, is what is the radical right? You know, how do we define that? I don't know if there's a kind of definitive explanation that most people stick to, but I'd be really interested to find out, first of all, what your views are on, on what the radical right is and whether it's any different from the far right or whether it's kind of all the same. Um, Patrick, I will go to you first. Sure, um, and, and thanks for, for having me, first of all. Um, the radical right is a, a subsection of, of, of the wider far right. Um, so in the far right, we put uh, stuff like neo-Nazis, for example, who are anti-Semitic um, and um, kind of uh, opposed the democratic system that we are in today. Uh, the radical right, is kind of in the opposite end of the spectrum of, of the far right. Um, here we find political parties. Um, these are um, organizations uh, that accept the democratic order. So they don't oppose the system we're in. Um, they want to change it through um, democratic means, essentially. It doesn't mean that they have values that I think is compatible with, with the democratic system. It doesn't mean that they uh, think that people are uh, equal uh, and so on. Uh, it doesn't mean that there is no racism there, um, but they don't seek to uh, change the democratic system in, in, in a fundamental way. They are not uh, a revolutionary. 
and often I um, should add they're often focusing on on immigration um islam um rather than anti-semitism um and often um kind of promote traditional gender roles cool thanks patrick um maddie what are your thoughts yeah i would absolutely agree with everything patrick just said um generally speaking well within academia anyway there's sort of a lot of debate as to where what terms to use where to draw the line like do you use far right extreme right radical right this kind of thing there's sort of generally as Patrick said on the far right it's considered like not part of the mainstream or electoral politics but Trump kind of blurred that line a little bit um (laughs) but generally speaking yeah it's a opposition to equality often along racial ethnic um lines um associated with nationalism nativism authoritarianism but um yeah i think among academics scholars the far right is kind of infamously difficult to define in like concrete terms um but yeah i think patrick did a pretty good job there don't really have anything else to add cheers and anything else to um, add on that jack um, not particularly. I think those are really good uh, explanations. Um, I mean, one of the difficult things, is obviously, di- uh, experiences in different countries, you know, people in different nations kind of define radical right. Uh, this is kind of unique in having kind of anti-government extremists as well that are sometimes lumped in with the radical right kind of term. So you have like, the, the uh, patriot movement and kind of extremist militias who also kind of crop up in the US, not so much in, in other countries. Um, also, I think it's worth, worth, worth noticing that people often use the term uh, far right to kind of incorporate, they, they're also, also trying to incorporate aspects of kind of mainstream conservatism as well within that kind of term. Um, and they, it's often used kind of more vague than the radical right, but, but some people also then use it kind of interchangeably. So, yeah, it's very much open to interpretation and no one's really hammered down a, 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 a yeah, universally agreed upon definition yet. Yeah, yeah, like a lot of things in politics, I guess the lines are always very blurred as usual. Um, so thinking about young people, you know, specifically, um, and young people is a massive demographic in, in many respects anyway, but, you know, h- how can young people become susceptible to to the sort of the radical right and, and, and their ideas? You know, as I started this discussion by talking about the kind of general characterization of young people as being quote unquote woke, that's generally how young people are sort of described and and seen or just sort of apathetic about politics, uh, perhaps is the other um, conception of young people. But yeah, you know, how, what sort of young people, what trends do you think um, that are there of young people who might be susceptible to these sorts of ideas? Um, might come back to you, um, Maddie, on, on this. Yeah, I think there's, there's a massive perception of sort of far right youth being angry young men or angry men in general, um, who feel thwarted by modernity and feminism and sort of racial progress because they're no longer sort of top of the food chain, which I'm not sort of discounting that. There are absolutely those kind of people in the far right, but I think just seeing it as that is really limiting what we can do to kind of combat it. Um, I think like extremist propaganda of any form appeals to young people in particular appeals to their imaginations and their emotions um i really do believe and there's a lot of research and just general common sense really to suggest that the far right is 
all about emotions. Um, it appeals to angry people, people who sort of want to like direct their anger or frustration at the world at a particular group of people, or they just want to belong to something or they want to feel like they're sort of part of something bigger or they just want to rebel. Um, and the far right kind of massively offers them a sort of path to do that. And also I think in the current situation, COVID has massively exacerbated everything because not only is it kind of reinforcing the, the far right's idea of like inevitable societal collapse, <laughs> um, it a lot so like people have just spent a year on the internet on their phones, just at home feeling more isolated than maybe they would have been already. Um, they're spending longer online and they're sort of, it's fertile ground for recruitment, I think. Cool. Um, Patrick, I'll come back to you. What are your thoughts around, around this? Um, yeah, no, but I, I agree. I mean, first of all, we should though say that um, young people today are overall um, quite progressive and is heading in a positive direction, actually, uh, when it comes to uh, race and sexuality and gender. Um, it's actually quite good. Uh, it's, it's improved and in, in, the, in the last decade and two decades. Um, but at the same time, we have this smaller group of, 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 of young people who take on these sorts of ideas. Um, but that's not a new thing either. It's easy to blame things like uh, the internet and um, the gaming and uh, now COVID and, and those things, which, which, which matter. They do matter. Um, but um, especially on kind of the extreme end of the far right, um, young people have kind of always been there. Uh, and I think this comes back to, to what, what, what uh, Maddie was saying. Um, it's kind of what, what, what the far right offers you as a young person. Um, it offers you uh, as a man a way to prove yourself in terms of, of, of um, violence and your uh, masculinity, uh, gives you a context. Um, and as a young person, um, the, the far right uh, recruits you in a very negative sense. So it's not um join and become better it's it's rather um you are your life is worthless anyway nothing is going to work out for you you're not going to have a family you're not going to get a job nothing is going to work out the mm -hmm. societal trajectory is just going straight down so um do you want to um be part of the last generation or do you or uh, or rather, do you want to be part of this kind of um, declining generation or do you want to go out with a bang um, and be remembered? Wow. Uh, and that's, and, and that's, that's attractive to um, young people, I think. Um, so yeah. we've seen that in the 90s, uh, for example, in Sweden, that Madamibi has looked at uh, it was a very violent time in, in the far right there, for example, um, car bombs and that sort of thing. And that was very young people overall. Um, and and it's, it's been like that for a long time. Yeah, that's really interesting actually you say that because that's, that's a very extreme message, isn't it? Like, do you want to be part of the last 
the last best generation before it all goes horribly wrong. Um, and it's interesting because um, there was actually a report that was released by the Institute of Economic Affairs on basically the opposite of this, um, which was about how why young people are becoming more left wing and there's this idea of like generation left. Um, but it's interesting because there might be kind of, I think people being dissatisfied with the status quo at the moment and like, you know, not having much like financial stability, housing stability, job stability. It's interesting that there is a portion of maybe young people who kind of go the other way. A lot of young people are moving left and saying, oh, well, I've, I'm a socialist or I'm left wing, but maybe there's a portion of people in response to not getting what they expected to, to get in this society, maybe moving towards towards the, the right as well. That, that's really interesting. Um, Jack, what, what are your thoughts on, on this? Um, I think, you know, all of you are absolutely right. I mean, like I said, I think quite a lot of the concern at the moment is there have been some new statistics that have just been released that have caused quite a, have caused quite a lot of concern. So I know that um, in like the year leading up to April 2021, I've scrolling down here that three courses of children on suspicion of terrorist offences who were arrested uh, in Britain were found to be far-right extremists. So it's so people who are, who are being arrested for extremism in the UK, um, who, are, who are also children, um, the, the majority do, do seem to be right-wing extremists at the moment. Uh, or at least in the last year, which has obviously caused quite a lot of concern amongst, you know, counter-terrorism, policing, all those kind of issues. Um, also, another uh, quite a great commentator on this is um, Nigel Bromwich, who's head of uh, Exit UK, and he's also been you know, sounding the alarm bell about this for uh, for quite a long time. Uh, he and I, I think it's also quite important to know that um, that children are obviously you know quite inherently vulnerable to, to this kind of extremism because all this time spent online, that's absolutely true. Um, also, we, I don't think we can ignore how worrying extremists you know, uh, do actively target uh, children. Um, and you are having some recent cases where, like, for example, they've uh, basically created uh, neo-Nazi video games to kind of draw, to, to kind of draw children in. Um, yeah, so I, I think it's also important yeah, to notice how, how they're actually uh, uh, targeted in, in particular. Yeah, um, and that's one of the other things I really wanted to go on to with go on to go on to sorry which leads me quite nicely to my next question which is really I guess what what does the grooming process actually look like um you know some of these as you've mentioned Jack like some of these young people we're, we're really talking about some quite young people really aren't we not even sort of older older teenagers um maybe this is a good thing to kind of come back to you on Jack because I think you wrote about this as part of the the series um what does that sort of grooming and, and radicalization process look like really on a, on a sort of practical level yeah, well, I mean, so radicalization is kind of, it's like a, I mean, kind of quite a loose definition. It's, it's like a process that leads uh, to a person's hold extremist beliefs over, it can be a long period of time or it can happen quite quite rapidly. It very much depends on the individual. Um, but in general, what, what I saw in my research was that it tends to start um, quite low key. So people like could be brought into a chat forum and, for example, ask to, ask to post a, a, a racist meme to make sure they're all on the kind of same level of, you know, of their, of, of their physical views. Um, and it's kind of often seen as kind of uh, extremist kind of like humour. It's quite a, is a term they kind of throw, in, uh, throw about. Um, and, and they use those kind of methods to kind of draw them in. And then over time, they'll then expose them to more and more extremist material. Um, so it's kind of, it's kind of quite, a, quite a long process. And children kind of, or young people kind of get drawn into this kind of process. Um, and they kind of enter what we kind of call a, um, like a, a filter bubble, where they only... Uh, and kind of uh, block out any other um, opposing views and over time that kind of leads them to accept these worrying extremist views as being quite normal um, whereas at the start they wouldn't have and that's just because of you know mainly because of um, exposure and it's, it's, it's quite a long process where worrying extremists will you know kind of talk to them online and then 
by the end of the process, they'll see these extreme views as being quite normal because it's what they've been exposed to over, over quite a long period of time. And I think it's important to, to realize that there are lots of different ways happens uh, and um, that young people have some agency in, in, in this as well. Um, although in, in some cases it is very, very young people and, and, and it's kind of complicated stories. Um, but we often see that, because um, I looked at a few kind of youth run, run groups, so they're run by 15, 16 year olds and have some younger members and some older members, um, that quite often it's um, young people who recruit other young people. Mm. So they get uh, classmates and, and people they've met in, in online um they put propaganda up on on their instagram uh, and so on um and they can be quite um quite negative towards older people so um the argument is is quite like um these old men have told us what to do for decades and look what where the far right has come we have achieved nothing uh now it's time for young people to take over which is what every generation says um but young people have more agency uh, or, or more, more um, kind of uh, called legitimacy uh, with other young people uh, and they manage to bring in kind of their friends um, and, and other people uh, and they speak, speak the same language, uh, communicate on the same platforms. So it's, it's often other young people that bring, that, that makes these things grow. Um, at the same time, there are often um, kind of older members, even in these very um, youth-run groups that um, act as some sort of advisor or a kind of mentor role, take on some sort of mentor role in them and tell people what to read uh, and what not to do and what to do. Um, so there's a little bit of, of both. And then we have kind of gaming communities and so on. And then gaming, um, I find interesting because it's one of those places on the internet where, um, first of all, games are social, um, lots of chatting and so on in them. Um, they're intergenerational kind of spaces on the internet. Um, so so there, there is an opportunity there for um, older people to influence younger ones, um, which is, um, of course, uh, problematic. And younger people are, you know, they have less of a um, ideological grounding and might be easier to, to influence. Um, at the same time, in those days, it can be really good. Like, um, it's, it's positive <laughs> with intergenerational hangouts online as well. Um, but, but that's another kind of uh, element to it, I think. Yeah, and that's interesting as well. I'm not personally much of a gamer, so I really don't know much about like modern gaming, especially all online. Um, I only remember gaming from when I had like a PS1 as a kid. Um, but obviously it's moved on a lot since then. Um, but I don't know as well how, like, how well regulated those online areas even are. Like when I think of social media, which arguably of course is, is poorly regulated anyway, but you know, there's there's some kind of rules and regulations on that. I don't, it feels like gaming is like perhaps a, a very different online space where it probably would be even easier to to radicalize people and say some quite extreme things potentially. I, I don't know. 
Yeah, absolutely. I, I think you're right. And I, I'm not a huge gamer gamer <laughs> nowadays either. Uh, but I have some experience. Um, I, th- I think there are several things to it. It's it's often small groups. So you, know, you speak just with, with the people you're playing with at, uh, right now and it's not public. So it's very hard to monitor. Um, organizations like like us, we, we, we just have no insight there because it's just those eight people playing at the same time or, or whatever that, that sees these messages. Um, and at the same time, it's, it's not just the in-game chatting uh, and voice chats, but they also use an other app on the long side, like Discord, for example. Um, so it's, um, they use multiple platforms at the same time to communicate, which just makes it uh, incredibly hard to uh, keep track of. Um, and there's voice chats often as well, um, which aren't recorded and um, can't really be monitored in a... Uh, or in a, in a, it's not feasible to to keep track of those. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the other things I wanted to, to pick out of this, and again, some of you, this might not fall under your, your specialisms or areas that you feel like you know much about, but I think it's, it's possibly quite an obvious question, which I, I suppose is one of a class analysis in this as well. Um, so like, I suppose to what extent would we view, I suppose traditionally we might think of sort of working class white young men being sort of the most vulnerable to these ideas? I mean, from your experience or, or what you know, I mean, is, is that true? Um, is it predominantly among the youth community sort of working class young people who are more vulnerable to this stuff for a variety of reasons that of course may make a lot of sense? Um, I don't know if there's anyone in particular that would like to pick that up. Go for it, Patrick. I can, I can give it a go. Um, <laughs> I th- it, it's complicated. That's the, the long, uh, the, the short answer. Um, I think historically there has been some truth to it, um, but mainly when it comes to kind of like visible, uh, the visible far right. So um, I'm talking kind of uh, football supporters, um, hooligan uh, groups and so on. Um, from the 80s and 90s, uh, where, where um, <clears throat> physical confrontation, violence was a way to, to prove yourself, um, to show your extremism uh, through very physical means, um, which came with kind of legal consequences sometimes, although not often back then. Um, but it had those sorts of risks that, uh, and also because of where they come from, um, attracted um, a lot of working class uh, young men. Um, I think that's changed um, because the way you show your extremism today or show your kind of dedication to the cause has changed. Uh, it's not so much about beating people up on the street anymore uh, and much about uh, rhetorical extremism to express uh, very extreme ideas online, to cause outrage. Um, and, and this sort of thing uh, actually kind of uh, is, 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 is kind of middle class educated uh, people are often quite good at it because they uh, are good at their language. Um, they are expressive, they're, they're good at expressing themselves. Um, especially as it's an international movement nowadays, we have. Europeans and Americans and British people all, all coming together. So, but especially when you look at Europeans, you will find, you know, 
14 year old Swedish kids hanging out with British neo Nazis on Telegram.、Mm. And why does do and who are those kids then? Well, they are the kind of most educated、uh, Swedish kids who, who know English the best.、Um, so it's, it's changed in that sense.、Um, it comes with less of a risk of, of, of legal action, in,、uh, at least a perceived one. And、mm. as, as we said before, Lots of, of young people now have actually been、uh, brought before justice, but of the overall numbers, it's probably a very small amount.、Um, so I, I think it's overall it, it's shifted.、Uh, and I think, I mean, and, and, and when it comes to terrorist arrest, it, it, it shows out there as well.、Um, lots of these people have been very kind of middle classy、um, kids, actually.、Um, Even sometimes higher than that, quite wealthy backgrounds.、Um, so so it's, it's changed. That's really, really interesting, actually. And again, n- not something I think when we think of,、uh, of right wing extremism, we, we imagine, you know, people are imagining basically the, the sort of football hooliganism that we saw on Sunday, probably, aren't they? That they're not picturing the, the more sort of middle class or, as you said, wealthier. Wealthier people, that's really interesting.、Um, Maddie or Jack, I don't know if you've got any, anything to add on, on this particular、um, area of interest around class.、Um, no, I mean, I think、um, Patrick is absolutely correct. I mean, quite a recent example of kind of being smart when we talk about this is、um, Harry Vaughan, who was an 18 year old, who was recently arrested, I think it was actually in 2020,、um, for war and extremist offences.、Um, and, and he was, you know, he had four A star. Uh, a levels and was from a fairly middle class、um, background.、Um, so he certainly wasn't、uh, disadvantaged.、Um, so, yeah, I think you know, the kind of profile we're seeing in Patrick Archie Wright has, has become a lot more mixed and it's, lot, it's quite a lot more varied.、Um, yeah. I think also,、um, yeah, when Patrick mentioned it's not about beating people up on the street anymore, it's about how extreme you can be with your. Your rhetoric, your messaging, this kind of thing. Because、um, I do anthropology, I read a lot of ethnographies, and there's a really fascinating ethnography by a guy called Michael Kimmel in Sweden. And he sort of interviewed teenage neo Nazis from the age of 10 upwards. And、um, one just sort of small interview that he did really stuck out with me.、Um, there was a kid who was a neo Nazi when he was sort of 15, 16, and he's now completely left the movement and working with Exit, which is a、um, charity which helps kind of get young people out of the far right. And his dad is like a MP, a politician. And、um, he sort of said, What is the worst thing that you can be in Sweden? <laughs> Because it's considered to be like a highly progressive society.、Um, what is the worst thing you can be in Sweden and with your dad as an MP? And that's a neo Nazi. And so it's just like, how, how much can I rebel? <laughs> and that is sort of summed up <laughs> by being a neo Nazi. And、um, yeah, I think, well, in the, a lot of research that I've done, it's suggested that among young people in particular, They don't really know about the ideology. Like when asked about sort of what they think about fascism, they're like, what's that? <laughs> they're just like, oh, I just like, I just like hanging out with people and fighting and, you know, 
mm. chilling. <laughs> so I think, well, that's what I'm talking about in my dissertation, actually, how among young people, like adherence to white supremacist or fascist ideology is really not on the top of their list at all. <laughs> so that's why. I mean, this is kind of going away from the class question entirely. But, <laughs> but it attracts so many different young people, basically girls, boys, they're just looking for something to do <laughs> kind of in it. And it brings all sorts of people from all walks of life together. Really. So you yeah. don't have to necessarily be educated politically, but it helps or not. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. People's politics is often so much more about literally what they think and believe in, isn't it? It's there's that socialization element, I think, isn't there as well. Um, thank you very much. So we'll take a little um, turn into um, a bit of a different topic as part of this, um, which I guess is really more your bag, uh, Maddie, um, which is really thinking about um, the history of women's involvement in um, sort of radical right wing extremism, um, which you focused on within the Make Politics series. And you wrote a really great piece um, around young women. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about kind of the, that history of, of women's involvement and, and why women are also, you know, young women are also susceptible to, to, to radical right-wing extremism as well, which again, we, many of us wouldn't think so when we think of the sort of typical person that might join a, a radical extreme right-wing group. Yeah, um, so, you know, as I said before, the kind of stereotypical image of a far-right youth would be uh, angry white man um, for sort of all the all the reasons I mentioned earlier and like overall there are far more men in the far right no one's denying that women are definitely in the minority um, but I think it's really important not to underestimate their capacity within the movement internationally and um, how they are often just considered like wives, girlfriends, sort of mothers um, of members, but which is true, they are, but I don't think that that should be necessarily diminished because women's roles as mothers and wives within the movement keeps the movement going and has done for generations. Um, and yeah, so I think in terms of the history of women's involvement in the far right, um, they've sort of been absolutely integral to it from the very beginning. So for example, in the US, um, during slavery, women had very little economic political power back then, but they could buy and sell slaves. And so women's kind of socio-political capital in part hinged upon slavery and sort of going after that after the civil war they were mad about slavery being abolished because that was kind of a way of them getting an iota of power in society um and then after the civil war that's when the kkk um was formed and um at one point, the women's wing of the KKK had one and a half million members. So it was, you know, they were they were big in the in the uh, white supremacist world, and they had leadership roles. They they did a lot with um, 
propaganda for recruiting other women. Um, and they also played a key role in lynching, the lynching of black men because they would be, they would, black men would often be violently assaulted or killed due to false rape or harassment allegations by white women. And that was, that was a form of power for them, I guess, because they were sort of, the, the lives of these men sort of rested in their hands. Um, the famous case being Emmett Till, yeah. um, which was a completely false allegation. Um, and there's a really interesting Vox article about this. Um, and there's a quote, which I thought summed up really well. Um, through white supremacy, women came to understand themselves as individuals who wield a kind of certain power that men have to respect. So they, through slavery, through the KKK, through white supremacist structures, they developed this kind of power and that has absolutely continued today. Yeah. Um, so yeah, although they're in the minority, I think we it would be foolish to sort of diminish their roles within the movement. Yeah, and um, I don't know if you've seen the Spike Lee film, uh, Black Klansman, um, mm. which does depict, I think, one of the housewives having quite an integral role in um, some very um, dodgy uh, behaviour. I think putting a car bomb <laughs> under somebody's, a black woman's car, basically. So she plays a, a very integral role in um, the, the sort of white supremacist Ku Klux Klan movement in the in the film. So, so that's really interesting. And I think it's really interesting as well, what you said about this exchange of, of power because as women obviously you don't hold the same level of power as men particularly white men in in u.s society but you kind of get some of that power through your your racial your racialization <clears throat> and you almost i guess choose <laughs> your racialization of being white and kind of holding on to that um to kind of make up almost for the fact that as a woman you've actually got quite limited options in, in many ways in society as well so, so that's a really interesting um, sort of exchange and, and thought as well um, I don't know if either of you, uh, Patrick, or I know this probably isn't your bag, Patrick and Jack, but I don't know if you have any thoughts about women's um, uh, involvement in general in in, uh, in these movements. Sure, I can just give. Um, no, this is really interesting, I think. And I, and I think that, like, the, the, the way um, researchers and journalists and the general public think about uh, women in the far right kind of uh, mirrors how we're looking at, at women and also in progressive movements in lots of ways. Um, women are uh, kind of diminished in anti-fascism as well, uh, whereas they've played an integral integral role for 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 decades. I mean, there are women in Britain's anti-fascism who's been getaway drivers and uh, all sorts of of crazy things. Um, and I, I just I, it, it's just not really true anymore. Um, Patriotic Alternative, for example, which is um, probably the biggest far-right organization in, in the UK right now, um, which is an explicitly fascist organization. Um, it's, it's one of its leaders is a woman. Um, most of its members are still men, but uh, women hold a very central role. And I think it's also important to, to um, discuss social media here, I think, as well, um, with kind of the advent of kind of the alt-right and... Uh, YouTube commentary, uh, women kind of carved out a very uh, big piece of, of, of that cake, so to say, uh, and some of the biggest YouTube influencers um, two, three years ago 
uh, on the far right were women. Mm. Um, they probably, mo most of them aren't active anymore uh, because the movement isn't very forgiving uh, of, of women who make uh, kind of missteps uh, or, uh, yeah, they have a kind of a narrow um, plank to walk on uh, and they're quite easily shunned. Uh, which anyone is in, in the far right, um, but by women in particular. Um, but so kind of when the far right changes how it organizes, that's also opened up to other ways of, of women to take out, um, um, carve out kind of a bigger um, yeah, role for themselves. Really interesting. Um, one of the other things as well that I really wanted to ask you guys um, was this idea of kind of radical right-wing groups um, that aren't what we'd call sort of terrorist groups by any means at all. So groups perhaps like the EDL, Britain First, they have very distasteful perhaps uh, views that we probably wouldn't agree with, um, but they're not necessarily groups that are advocating sort of terrorism or, or anything that extreme outright. Um, but to what extent, I guess, are these groups that are kind of on those fringes, they're, they're kind of on the fringes of not really being acceptable mainstream politics, um, but they're maybe not quite sort of really, really extreme. To what extent do these groups like EDL, Britain First, you know, how do they, or do they even, create a kind of a climate where more extremist behaviour is able to, to, to foster or, or fester, I guess? I don't know if this is a, a question you'd like to answer, Jack, um, if I pull this to you first. Um, yeah, I think you're absolutely right to, um, to bring that up. I think, I, think, I think the main problem with those kind of groups, in, in terms of where they pose, in my opinion, the, the uh, most dangerous, the kind of rhetoric that they, that they put out there. And there have been quite a lot of examples where their kind of rhetoric has inspired, is not necessarily, so members of the group haven't necessarily carried out a terrorist attack, but their rhetoric has, has inspired others to do that. Um, so quite a good example was um, Darren Osborne in 2017, where he carried out like a vehicle attack against Muslim worshippers. Um, and basically all the court records and the court documents about him basically talk about how uh, he was uh, radicalised online by English Defence League uh, posts and Facebook posts and how he was really involved with them. Um, another quite a good example is uh, Thomas Mayer, I think it was in 2016, where he murdered uh, MP uh, Joe Cox. Um, again, they found lots of examples of where of his involvement uh, and links and like rather ideological links to um, what uh, Britain First, you know, their kind of rhetoric that they, they were putting out there as well. Um, so I think that's kind of, and like, I think quite a lot of different people can, can, can get involved with Britain First and EDL and not necessarily go on to be a terrorist. Um, but then again, there are these, these group of people who, who do go on to, to, be, to become quite dangerous individuals. Um, another quite example is uh, Ryan McGee, who was a former British soldier who was also arrested uh, for constructing a, a nail bomb, which he, you know, looked like he was planning on using on um, immigrants, but obviously we'll never know. Um, and again, he was also found to be inspired by the EDL's rhetoric. So, I mean, there was quite a lot of examples of you know, where these groups and the, and the message they put out there can often you know, turn to violent action by certain individuals. Well, these are the, the sort of the largest uh, far-right organisations of them, or has been for, for, for periods. EDL isn't that active anymore, but... Um, it's it's been it was really really big a few years ago and, and organized large uh, large demos and so on and part of that was that it uh, wasn't explicitly racist they talk about Islam uh, of course there is um, the consequences of it and how people read that differs but um, they will argue that they're not 
racist. They don't talk about race. Um, and they, they don't in some regards. Um, same with Britain First, although that's changed now in just the last year, they've become a little bit more um, explicitly uh, explicit on race. Um, but because they, they, they shun away from those topics, they become a little bit, bit more palatable and they can grow. Uh, and when they do, um, we get these massive demonstrations, um, loads of members, um, and, and in that sense, they have a bigger uh, potential to, to spread fear, um, especially then in this case uh, among, among uh, Muslim people. Um, so in, in that sense, they're extremely harmful. Um, but then there's also the element of, of kind of them as a stepping stone into more extreme politics. Like, yes, there are these terrorists um, that, that, that Jack talked about. Um, and that kind of comes about from um, kind of the road to violence and the far right usually goes um, from, from kind of a, a feeling that what you're doing now doesn't work. It doesn't cause uh, change uh, fast enough or um, deep enough. So we need to become a little bit more extreme. Um, and and uh, several of the members who were in, in these organizations have moved further, further out to the far right. Thanks, Patrick. So my final question, I guess, to wrap this all up, which is probably the hardest question of all, <laughs> really is thinking about all these issues and problems is how do we actually tackle um, the, the, the issues of, of right-wing extremism um, not just, I guess, with, with young people, but I suppose in, in general, really, you know, how do we tackle these issues on a societal level, on a governmental level? Um, I don't know if anyone is desperate to take this question first. Um, Maddie? <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> um, no, it's not a hard question. Yeah, no, I'll just, I'll just solve it now. Um, I think, it, well, for me, I think it's all about counter narratives, really. You've got to get them early <laughs> because obviously people are becoming radicalized so young um spotting sort of early warning signs even if it's just a kid who's spending a lot of time on reddit i don't know that's such a generalization but um isolation alienation sort of angry young kids i feel like they're just looking for a, an avenue to direct the anger and if they're directing it along racial lines, you know, that is just, that is a pipeline to the far right um, where they will welcome them with open arms. Um, so I feel like, yeah, the narrative of the far right is very appealing to young people. Um, they're offering them, you know, brotherhood, sisterhood, belonging, friendship. Um, and yeah, that should just somehow <laughs> be diverted towards you know a better cause um but also I really believe I mean I'm obviously absolutely not at that stage yet but there are so many charities um hope not hate I'm sure has engaged with this before um also uh, life after hate in the US where they're engaging properly with former extremists rather than shunning them and saying you are a lost cause da, da, da. talking to them and getting their perspectives on stuff I think generally I mean genuinely is 
something that really should be considered by sort of at governmental levels um, rather than just getting all these people who ultimately have no idea what it's like to be in a far right movement sort of forming policies where they, I mean, they have some idea of what they're talking about, but not really. <laughs> I feel like that you need you need people who have been in the absolute thick of it, who have come out the other side with this whole perspective that is totally unique to them. Um, Jack, what, what are your thoughts about how we tackle these tackle these? I issues? think that was some excellent points um, from Ali. I think um, I think I've. I think in terms of actually stopping terrorist acts and stopping extremists, like and, and stopping extremists, and I think actually UK police have done very well recently with our extremist groups. You know, Touchwood, they prevented anything uh, massively serious from happening for a while now, and there's been a lot of recent arrests. Um, so in that in that area, they've done well. But um, I think there needs to be more of a focus on stopping people from being radicalised in the first place, like like Andy says. Um, and almost okay, who are, who are entirely made up of um, former extremists who have you know who are now former and are now. Uh, actively trying to help people and I think you know, it's getting those organizations in touch with parents and teachers um, uh, who can who can highlight uh, a child who they think might be at risk obviously there's there's the official routes to prevent as well but what Exit UK do really well is they they'll arrange like coffee meetings with these people who they thought were vulnerable and have one-on-one -on -one chats with them yeah and go as far as they're comfortable with and take a much like a like really quite a good soft approach with them um, which obviously doesn't work for everyone but I think that's quite a new and interesting approach that they're taking. Um, and yeah, so I think organisations like that, and also there are some other organisations who put out like um, parent and teacher guides as to what they should do and what they should look out for uh, with their young people and, and how they can safeguard them. Um, so those are all you know really good initiatives. And I think yeah, I think uh, the government getting behind those initiatives as well would be a, would be a really good starting point. Wonderful. And Patrick, what are your thoughts about how we tackle these issues? Mm. Um, yeah, no, I, I mean, I agree with many of, of these things. Um, it's, it, when it comes to young people, it must be about creating an alternative, um, not just deny that um, your feelings are wrong or say, say that these feelings are, are wrong, that um, you have nothing to worry about and you should just kind of work on it and everything will be fine because there's lots of, lots of, of of reasons to not be positive about the future and I think it's about taking those uh, those feelings seriously without taking kind of the ideological element to it so you don't need to take the uh, element that, that white men are, are oppressed seriously but you can still take the um, kind of feeling that where are things going seriously um, I think when it comes to young people, it's 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 a lot about schools and parents, um, actually, and and other things they're doing, uh, sports and so on, because those are the people who are the most in touch with them. They will be the first ones to know that something is off. Um, we uh, at Hope and Hate we do uh, education in schools, uh, so we have quite a bit of uh, contact with teachers and get quite a bit of worried calls from them. Um, and they're not experts on the far right. They're not experts on radicalization. Um, sometimes they mix up uh, a social media trend with, with, with far right slogans, but they're often the ones who know first when something is not right. Um, sometimes that leads to uh, a bit too extreme measures. Uh, that's 
probably more often the case uh, with with kids they think are are Islamists. Actually, they get sent to prevent um, a bit too harsh measures, calling the police and things. Uh, I think that's often um, can backfire. Um, so it's about meeting them and, and taking them seriously um, and giving them alternatives. Then, yeah, exit organizations like the ones we talked about, I think they're really good. Um, I think we shouldn't... Um, I think there's a bit of a danger in believing that just because you were radicalized, you understand radicalization. Uh, I don't think that's necessarily the truth. Um, and people who came into the far right in the 90s um, during completely different times and then now, I'm not sure they are the right person to talk to somebody who got radicalized online. Um, so I think that we need to be a little bit careful there in kind of the, the expert knowledge of someone who was previously far right. Um, because I think there is a value in um, observing these things closely, but at a distance, rather than being immersed in it. Um, I don't think... I can't explain my own political path into where I am today, for example. Um, I can't explain exactly what woke me up one day and, and made me believe what I believe. So I, I don't think that's any different. Um, but there are definitely things they can add. Uh, but we need more than that. We need people who uh, are psychologists and, and, and understand these things. Um, and then separately from all of this, it's media and politics. Um, we can't have um, a tabloid press and, and politicians who kind of give credence to um, some of these kind of culture war things that kind of lead out into schools and, and, and to the general population. Brilliant. I thought those were all really excellent points. And on that hopeful note, um, for hopefully things being better in the future, um, I think we will finish there. Special thanks then to my wonderful guests, Maddie Cannon, Jack Skates and Patrick Hermanson. That was a really interesting discussion. Thank you so much. Um, please do check out um, the Centre for Analysis of the Radical Right. Um, they've got some really fantastic, interesting content on their website. Give them a follow. I think they're on Twitter. Um, and of course, do give hope, not hate a follow as well. They always push out some really interesting content um, and they're really on the ball with everything that's happening at the moment. Um, and please do as well give Naked Politics a follow on Instagram, Facebook and or Twitter. Uh, thank you very much, guys. Cheers. Thank, thank you. you very much.